Welcome committee. I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and normally you'd be hearing I'm Connor Cornelius from my lovely co-host, but he is not able to make it here this week. But that's all right. We'll have him again soon, and uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk with movies with Connor. But for right now, we're going to jump right into our first guest of the show. Uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on NoCo's before, but I am a big, big fan of of asian cinema whether it's from china japan what have you um i came a little bit late to watching movies from outside of the west but luckily when i was a kid i had the chance to move to singapore and i became much more aware of asian culture specifically that of asian media um and this goes a little bit beyond just someone like you know watch a little hayao miyazaki when you're growing up as a kid influential but um became very aware of some of the masters of cinema uh, in both Asia and, uh, you know, they became masters of cinema around the world, uh, specifically like Akira Kurosawa, Ozu, many of these people that became foundational to cinema as a, as a worldwide art. And luckily today, we have the opportunity to talk to someone who is helping bring awareness and appreciation of asian cinema here to the city of chicago i'm very lucky to have founder and uh, executive artistic director of asian pop-up cinema and sophia's choice sophia wong baccio thank you so much for coming on the show hi tom thank you for having me well uh This is a great event coming up. It starts in uh, September. It's going to be September 12th. The Asian Pop-Up Cinema. It's the the seventh season of Asian Pop-Up Cinema. And it's 17 films from across the Asian continent. uh, Playing from September 12th to November 14th. And when it says across the Asian continent... It really means from pretty much everywhere. We've got films from South Korea, China, the Philippines, Thailand, and uh, it's going to be an experience for film lovers and people who just want to have a different cultural experience. So I guess let's just jump into Sophia's Choice, the uh, nonprofit Pan-Asian film organization that you founded. Tell me a little bit about how Sophia's Choice came to be. Well, uh, I've been living in Chicago since 2000, and uh, I've waited and waited uh, all this year and uh, all the way to 2015. I still haven't seen an Asian film festival. There's a very good Chicago International Film Festival, and I was re- involved right uh, for seven years of it. I, I was very honored to be part of that. Um, but there's still no Asian film festival. I'm very surprised. You know, New York today, you know, New York, Denver, Seattle. They all have they Asian, all film, have film, Asian film festival. <laughs> and why don't Chicago have one? Uh, so there was a void. There was a lead. And also, deep down, I'm the type of person I like to connect. And I think how good it is to connect all the community here I mean, the Asian, com- uh, the, the Filipino community, the Thai community, the Japanese community, and using 
a film festival to be a common platform for them to showcase some of their stories and their talents all the way from Asia. So that was the probably the very uh, little idea that I started with. Um, and so uh, by the fall of 2015, I went ahead, I found uh, a group of people sharing my mission mm-hmm. to bridge the East and the West uh, using the platform of an Asian film. Uh, I must explain a little bit why we become a pop-up. We become a pop-up is, number one, I want to pop up twice a year. I don't want to be conventionally stuck in a annual film festival mode. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like after all this year living here, uh, the schedule, the people's time definitely have changed and evolved. Uh, Sometimes it's actually quite difficult and challenging to ask people to come and watch 20 films at the same time within mm-hmm. three days or four days. I mean, that's a lot. That that's, is to smash that all in. I mean, you want to be able to appreciate the films, right? Yes, you want to space it out a little bit. Uh, so the idea of pop-up is I pop up twice a year. I have a spring session and I have a fall session. And when I pop up, it's two and a half months, maybe one film a week. So if you uh, you know, schedule your time, you actually can plan it ahead and, and pick out the films you want to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that become my pop-up. So that's why coming up uh, this fall has become my season seven. And I hope um, the 17 film, which made up of 14 full-length features, including three uh, documentary, mm-hmm. and then uh, three uh, what we call omnibus film. Omnibus, yes, yes, yes. Short film, but made by the masters of their uh, of their countries, mm-hmm. uh, would be a good uh, selection and showcase for everybody to enjoy. And that's what I really like about it the most is that um, you found a way to give a little bit of everything from so many different, you know, diverse countries and points of view. And, you know, now that you mention it, like, I don't know why I didn't think of, wow, there's no Asian film festival, considering that the history of film, especially, you know, just as a global art is so intertwined in Asia. You have so many... um, different masters of film coming from the Asian continent that it is surprising that it didn't exist before. Um, I want to see, you know, if you could guide us through some of the films that you have. I mean, 17 films across basically a month. It's a full month film festival. Uh, You're opening with a film called Adulthood, and that's a a Korean film from first time director. uh, And pardon me if I uh, pronounce this wrong. Kim in Sion? Yes. Close enough. I did a good job. Uh, so this is the this is the story of a strong, plucky 14-year-old and her never really grown-up uncle. And at her father's funeral, she meets her uncle for the first time. And uh, how does, you know, this movie is going to be opening the whole festival, the whole pop-up. Can you tell us a little bit about selecting that film and what about it stood out to you? Well, uh, in general, my criteria for selecting my film is um, there must be something that catches me, or I would say an entry level for American audience, because my target audience are general American audience. I'm not showing this for film critique. I'm not doing it for a, a competition. They're not the film being shown here are really for the audience to enjoy and to learn something out of it. Uh, for this film, besides it's a woman 
uh, filmmaker making it. Um, uh, I think it's her first feature. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a very young talent in it. She's only 14 years old, and she is going to receive our Bright Star Award because we're honoring her. And I think uh, in many film festivals, even international film festival level, you hardly see a minor star being honored. And I'm very pleased that she's making time to come over here to have the opportunity to meet the audience here. Um, so the film, at the end of the day, you have to love this kid. She is almost <laughs> on every frame and she's so talented. And if people follow, you know, Korean film or Korea, she is already being uh, casted in many uh, important film or dramas, uh, mostly as the tri- child actor of the main lead. And I think she's also playing the child actor of the Netflix f- series called Sense 8. Oh, wow. Yes, Sensei, which is made here by the Wachowskis here in Chicago. Right. And uh, there is a Korean actress in there. Her uh, her, uh, acting name, you know, screen Mm. name in that is Sun. So she played the Sun, the young version of Sun. Wow. Yeah. So So she really is a a rising star. She is definitely a rising star. And in this movie, at the end of the day, who is the real actor here? So that's the name of the title, adulthood. That is fantastic. I, I, you know, mentioning the audience um you said that these a lot of these people are first time watching film maybe korean film or thai film whatever they're coming to see um tell me a little bit about in previous seasons what's the general reaction from these first time asian film you know viewers they're coming in to watch something that they might have no real cultural reference for um they might be used to watching just like big budget superhero movies, that sort of thing. How do people generally react to these movies? Well, generally, I got very good feedback. I, I'm very encouraged by that. So that's why I am keep going doing this. Um, is that they mostly appreciate the opportunity to hear the filmmakers there uh, at the end of the show to talk to them. And uh, they they learn about the making of the film, the concept, the idea, where it first started. They even heard, uh, hear a little bit of the, uh, a lot of filmmakers made story that close to their heart, where they were born, where they grew up. So different geographic locations were mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, not just the big city, could be a little town. Uh, and the setup uh it's like I'm not showing this to 1,000 people. So you hardly can have a good conversation on that basis. Uh, so my post-screening discussion is really an integral part of the film festival. Uh, they come all the way from Asia. Most of them are first time to Chicago as well. So it's a good conversation on any levels, uh, just between a filmmaker or just between between a first-time visitor to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all in all, it was very well received. When you bring over these filmmakers, and it is it is their first time in Chicago, potentially the United States, um, what are their thoughts coming to, you know, coming to America? And is why is Chicago a good place to bring them to have this experience? Well, I think, I must say, uh, people from outside of United States always think about New York is United States. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have lived in New York. Yeah. I have lived in other cities. I must say that New York is not United States. No. <laughs> However, 
after living here now six, uh, 17, 18 years, I call Chicago like the middle capital of the United States. It's like a center place. It's actually a very Americana here. Uh, if you know a little bit of history, you probably know more than I do because I don't grow up. But Illinois State is it's the growth, uh, it's the original wheat bell mm-hmm. that you grow all the wheat, right? The corn, the wheat field. Once you're outside of Chicago, it's corn films, right? Yes, There's nothing else. And, and those are the farmers. They are the, the root, the people, the original people of an, any nation. And I think that's actually very, you know, very connecting, you know, I, I, more, more, how do you say, more, uh, uh, gr- uh, grounded. Okay. These yeah. are the real people and nothing flashy. Uh, but we also have a variety of uh, the uh, big city. We got everything here. Mm-hmm. Opera, you know. You got the full cultural the, the experience. Full cultural experience. And you don't have to fight with three million tourists. Yeah. <laughs> so I, they all love it. They all come here. They love it. They take pictures everywhere. They sh- put it on, on the Turn it, you know, they are filmmakers, right? Yes, they make yeah. it an artistic little, little video out of it. They dance with it. They add mon- uh, music behind it. They, they show it on their, their uh, Facebook page everywhere. So I think, uh, they are our little ambassadors. Yeah. They come and they home. experience the city and it sounds like they, they really seem to find something, uh, artistic about it. They seem to find a little bit of inspiration in Chicago. So, I mean, I'm glad that, you know, we're so lucky to have them coming across here. If if they want to make a film, have at it, please. Yes, add to the- I, I, that would be my biggest job, biggest yes. dream. If I ever got some Asian filmmakers here and make a, a film based in Chicago, hooray! I can only imagine what that would look like. <laughs> you know, because Chicago, we have we have this own we have our own kind of uh, mythology about the city, city of broad shoulders. You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, what do you in your conversations with them when you have these? Uh, post-screen discussions do you ever talk about how they feel about chicago itself after being around a little bit do you ever what's what's the sense of when they come here i think uh number one all they remember chicago is gangster yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then after their visit here he said no this is not just about gangster it's actually a little uh hidden gems a lot of things to offer and it's very accessible uh i mean they really enjoy their experience here i i i took a uh one of the first time filmmaker who actually made a film based in hong kong about baseball so of course the first thing i took him is to the uh, wrigley field Amazing, right? Amazing for him. (laughs) And uh, so he had a blast. We got let in thanks to the regular film people. They were so nice. It was pre-show time. Mm -hmm. We we got in when they didn't uh, rehearse, uh, practice. Yes. Yeah, so it's very sweet. Uh, So this is also part of my mission too. You know, I'm doing also something back uh, uh, connecting the, uh, international visitor to learn about Chicago. I think we are really underrated. I shouldn't say underrated. We are already up there. Our tourism are going up, but I really enjoy 
as a residence and as a visitor. Because sometimes certain city you good to visit, mm-hmm. you don't want to live there. No, <laughs> here here you want to do both. You want you want to do both. It's yes. fun to be a, it's fun to be a tourist in your own city. Sometimes I'm yeah. sure them coming to America gives you the opportunity to rediscover parts of the city uh, itself. Um, speaking of, I mean, the big narrative here I think is connectivity and bringing people together and uh, creating just an, an international community through film and part of the asian pop-up cinema is you know you've got the series of some of the most acclaimed new asian cinema but also you're presenting eight free community screenings in partnership with select cultural organizations across the city can you tell us a little bit about those screenings and how you brought brought that all together well i think one of our mission is to amplify everybody's voices at the same time. If I find another cultural revolution, uh, uh, not re- revolution, <laughs> we are doing cultural revolution, yes. but we are, we are, we are another cultural organization sharing our big goal, you mm-hmm. know, uh, sharing, uh, doing the same type of, uh, cross-cultural, uh, conversation, sparkling that kind of uh, dialogue. I would love to bring a film to their institute or to their organization, uh, that amplify their mission as much as us. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, if I had my way, I would love to show all my films free. You know, everybody can come to it and make it really accessible. You know, at the end of the day, our, uh, Sophia's Choice is a cultural, uh, educational organization. Um, but, but, uh, uh, like this time, I have some film at uh, Illinois uh, Institute of Technology uh-huh. because it's part of their new initiative of cross-cultural conversation. Uh, so I bring in a, a South Korean documentary about a opera singer going to an Indian village to teach kids to sing Amazing Grace. You know, how cross-cultural can that be, Absolutely. Right? And in the end, because he wanted to make sure the kids show up for, for practice and rehearsal, he actually engaged the parents because the parents need their kids to work, to do all the chores. Right. So he engaged all the uh, parents to participate in the concert and becomes a parent of a big parents and children concert. It's a wonderful documentary. And this is a South Korean director making this co- uh, documentary. So I'm showing one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm also showing uh, a, a, a very, very prestigious, uh, what I said earlier, the three short films by mm-hmm. a Filipino director. All of them are award-winning director, Filipino director, a Japanese director, and a Cambodian director. This is actually a film produced by uh, Japan Foundation in collaboration with Tokyo International Film Festival. Mm. So they premiered it uh, a year ago and has never shown in United States. So we are bringing it to United States and I, I, I used the IIT, uh, opportunity that, uh, program to show it there. Uh, so they are over there is trying to get a couple of filmmakers to do a, a, a little talk on a video and share with us so then we can share it at that day. So all of this is I'm trying to show everybody just looking at some of the, uh, production, uh, background of each film, you will see Already, they are already integrated. Yes. You know, like, like, um, I'm showing a film shot in Tibet. It's another documentary. It's about all those horse riding herdsmen turn into playing 
NBA basketballs. And a Massachusetts NBA coach has been living there all this time, teaching them how to play basketball. How to play basketball, <laughs> and he also started uh, the uh, a, a comp, you know, uh, what do you call a, 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 a game? You know, uh-huh. the game to compete. Then you will see the monks have a team competing with the herdsmen and everything, all on the Tibet. In the yes. village, in a very remote village. So I thought these are fascinating story, and the collaboration behind Asia—they are already doing it. Why can't we in America embrace them? And that's—I mean—the mission alone is uh, should get people over there. I'm, again, September twelfth to November fourteenth. You have a whole month, a whole month to go see so many fantastic films. You know, eight of them being free. Um, when it comes to some of the, uh, you know, when it comes to some of the other screenings, what at what price can people see those those films? Well, roughly? so any ticket to show. At the AMC River East, I, I make it, uh, there is as our core venue, uh, is, uh, students, I always offer 20 free tickets. So first come, first serve. There the, you go. Show I up already, with your student ID. Yeah. Get show in there. that. You get in there. So my adulthood, unfortunately, all 20 tickets are gone already. There you go. <laughs> but, but the other ones, you yes. can get online and right away try to register it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, it's, uh, the price is between 13 to 15 dollars. We give also, if you actually, for the student, if they actually need to buy a ticket, it's eight dollars. Yeah. And then for, we give senior discounts, uh, and, and the general admission 15 dollars. So really very affordable. Very really quite affordable. affordable. And, and don't forget, I'm flying all the guests all the way from Asia. So you're not just watching a, f- a film. You're getting the full discussion afterwards, and that's worth its weight in gold. Um, showing at the AMC River East, one of the most central theaters you can come to in Chicago, and frankly, a very beautiful theater. Um, have, have you always been doing it when, in conjunction at the AMC? Well, I started off uh, 2015. That was my inaugural season. They already supported me They there. said, go for it. Let's it's do go it. Go for it. Let's do it. You know, uh, um, you know, for us, we basically, uh, I, I think the, uh, the relationship with AMC, this is part of the AMC independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they help with, uh, uh, you know, how do we call it? Boutique film festival or big festival. And there's several other film festivals where they have been there, uh, using them as the home base. Uh, the Latino film festival right. is there and also the Chicago international film festival is there. And one thing, uh, I'm very good at is I don't need to compete with anybody. No. And because we pop up, we do have the freedom to be mobile. So we go dark when Latino Film Festival is up. We go dark when Chicago International Film Festival is up. You know, so that I, I just want together we make a bigger voice. We want people to have all these choices uh, and pick the film they want to go. You know, French, Italian, the more they go to see, the better. Yes. Yes. I think we, we all have one mission, though. We train the Americans to read subtitles. Yes. <laughs> I mean, now you got Americans who can read it like 400 words per minute now. They just yeah, get they used to reading. Yeah, they get used to it. <laughs> I, was, I will say, when I was younger, I was like, oh, my God, how can I focus on the film while also, you know, reading the subtitles and getting the getting the dialogue? But once you get it, the the experience of watching a foreign film is so rich because unlike... 
watching a film in your native language sometimes you can drop in and out and be like oh you know just kind of listening not really paying attention and i will say that anytime i've gone to see a foreign film because i have to you know force myself be like i need to get what's happening here i've such a rich experience and um as to your point about you know the pop-up nature and being able to work around other film festivals the one thing I've definitely noticed about the Chicago film community is that they they all want the same thing that I think you were talking about, that connection. Mm. And what a, what a treat that we can go to one theater and see a Latino film festival and then see an Asian film festival and see the international film festival, some of the biggest um, film festivals out there. Um, 17 films across an entire month and... It's really just, it's worth your time to get out there. If you are not already a fan of Asian cinema, uh, this is going to be your way to get into it. This is going to be your chance to give yourself not just a, you know, a primer on foreign film, but a primer on a very specific community that has meant so much to filmmaking over decade you know a hundred years i mean people talk about the the staples of cinema as a as an art form a lot of them are coming out of the asian continent um i want to ask you about the recent success of the film crazy rich asians uh based on the best-selling book it's been a massive success that I, you know, I, I honestly did not know how well it was going to do. I knew the book was successful. Um, I knew that it had some big stars, uh, from Asian cinema. Like you had, uh, Michelle Yeoh playing the mother who I'd been watching since, you know, her martial arts days. She, to me, she is the queen of martial arts. And here she is playing this matriarch and do, doing a fantastic, fantastic job. So good. Um, but I wasn't really sure how people were going to react. And it's, it has totally changed the landscape. It seems like it's almost bringing people back to the romantic comedy because at its core, it is that similar romantic comedy plot, but with a, with a very, you know, specific voice and a specific way of doing things. But with the success of this film, I wanted to ask, do you think that this is going to bring a much greater general interest out of, you know, a lot of people who go to film festivals, it's a particular type of person that goes to this sort of thing. But do you think this is going to, we're going to see a rise in representation for the Asian community in American film? Are we going to see more people going to uh, films fronted by people from the Asian continent? I do think that more people uh, in the industry will at least start looking at these projects. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm sure every investor, every every studio head, you know, in the past must have gone through hundreds of scripts with Asian film, and they probably rejected outright. Didn't even take a look at it. Mm-hmm. But I think the success of Rich Crazy, uh, Crazy Asian definitely definitely caught people's attention. At the end of the day, I mean. Uh, people making film, they also wanted to, besides critically successful, they will also want it to be a viable, you know, commercially successful. Right. Uh, so that's the, that's the ultimate goal. And, and if a wider audience cannot accept it, that means there's a market for it. So mm-hmm. when there's a market for it, there will be a demand for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there will be more uh, opportunity, more project coming up. I just don't want to see, uh, in Chinese, we have a, a saying, Yi Wo Fong, a swarm of bees coming out. So all of a sudden you got a swarm of bees all coming out. And then they're they all making not better ones. Yes. They're making not so good ones. Yes. And that will actually 
uh, bring it down. Mm-hmm. I actually want people still con- the success of this film is not just because it's a rom com. It's also because of a very tight script, a uh, assembled of excellent cast, everybody well played, mm-hmm. uh, and the exotic city to show, you know, so pretty mm-hmm. and, and also got us some of the commonality of all the Asian market, the night market, the scene, the thing. Right. And of course, they sh- there's one thing that always caught everybody's uh, attention is the fantasy. Yes. The, so you're the always, opulence. The yeah. opulence, the fantasy, you know, like a pretty woman. Yes. It's a fantasy. <laughs> so this is another fantasy. So you want a fantasy to happen. Yes. And you go to a movie. Sometimes it's because you want to go for an illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, you got that experience. And so you got it. So everybody got it. So for the next round, I, I, I want to continue seeing, uh, Similar plot, but maybe take the audience to another level. Uh, show a little bit more common people stories mm-hmm. that can resonate with the general public here. Uh, because I think that there are so many universal themes that can be explored. Uh, just because somebody, you know, this color, that color doesn't mean anything. We all grow up in the same way, under the same guy, we mm-hmm. same sky, and we eating. It's the same stable food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we should be able to handle them. And, and I think uh, having that alternative and giving it a, a marketplace for it in the future is wise for America. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. With Crazy Rich Asians, it's everything that you've said. It's everything that you've said. And it's just, uh, it's nice to know that that's just the tip of the iceberg for how deep things can go. And I think that, you know, the real, the nitty gritty, as they say, is going to be some of the stuff that you're going to see at the Asian pop-up. Um, a lot of stuff about people just just average people you know just experiencing their lives and you'll you'll walk away learning something you know different and you'll you'll find the commonality between your own experience you know it doesn't need to be exactly the same but um as the uh, great critic roger ebert once said film is an empathy machine mm-hmm. um so i do want to ask let's uh you know i think we'll end it here in this uh, why why do you think that the medium of film is the best way to create those connections that you're talking about what is it about watching a film that might give someone a better sense of a different experience or a different lifestyle or just a different part of the world well i'm also i'm a visual person uh I probably don't read, read that fast, but I can absorb two hours movie bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, as a media, you know, a film is always uh, easier to reach out to people. The the fact that I grew up in Hong Kong, I, I watch more Hollywood movie than ever. And that means Hollywood studio movie, even though it's a studio make movie, it penetrated the market. Mm-hmm. It showed actually the America culture, the lifestyle. They show actually, um, how do I say, uh, the, the world to live in, mm-hmm. in a Western hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And it's actually very effective, you know, and, and so why can't we use this simple tool to see some Asian culture uh, in the movies and it's only two hours of anybody's time and you can watch it and you also got a chance to talk to the filmmakers mm. and I think it's the best way to connect and learn something out of it. Absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, the Asian pop-up cinema season seven that arrives in Chicago on September 12th and it features 17 films from across Asian 
Asian continent. It's going to run through November 14th, and uh, you're going to get a lot of info if you go over to asianpopupcinema.org. Uh, where can we follow the the pop-up, Sophia's Choice? Where can we follow you guys on social media? Yeah, we, we have our own uh, Facebook page. Uh, Sophia's Choice Presents is our profile, and we also have a, a fans page uh, just called Asian Pop-Up Cinema. You will find us in both uh, social media. We're also on Twitter. Uh, our website is is a wealth of knowledge. That's where you got everything about each film, about the trailer, about the stew, about the di- bio of the directors. And you also can see a little bit of our past attraction to get an idea, our program like. And all the dates are up there. All the tickets are on sale. And if it's a free screening, you can register your seats already now uh, so that we make sure uh, you have a seat when you come to our cinema. Yeah, and you're going to want those seats, everybody. Sophia Wong Baccio, who is the founder and executive artistic director of both Sophia's Choice and uh, Asian Pop-Up Cinema, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation. Hopefully, we'll see you soon. And we'll see you over at the Asian Pop-Up Cinema. Thank you, Tom. Thank All you. All right. We'll be back in just a minute. We're going to have our next edition of the No Coast Board of Review coming up with our favorite film critic, Matt Cipolla. Stick around. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. It is time for our No Coast Board of Review. I am your board president, Tom Hush. And normally I'd have my uh, second, in ch- second in command, my chief of, uh, of board activities, uh, Mr. Connor Cornelius. But as you heard earlier, he is not here this week. We sorely miss him. Uh, he's taking a sabbatical for the, for the moment, uh, enjoying his Labor Day weekend. But that's all right. Uh, We do have one of our board members here this week to talk about um, what can only be described as painfully mediocre in terms of a month of film. We have Mr. Matt Sapola from Film Monthly and so many other places. Matt, welcome back to the show. Hi. So glad that you could join us to talk about um, what is not quite a dumpster fire, but uh, more or less just a really painfully uh average month in film um you know it's not without bright spots let's let's get let's get that out of the way there's some really big highs uh finally saw the release of some films that um matt you got to see at the chicago critics film festival you got to see a con um and you know finally getting a general audience seeing it but um all in all the big tent poles really not much to speak of matt yeah, and that's the thing. It felt a lot more brutal than it actually was because I had seen I had seen uh, most of the movies I liked months beforehand. Right. So it was just a complete dead zone when I actually <laughs> got to hear. Um, there was some stuff like when we're going to talk about Black Klansmen or Support the Girls or some other stuff we saw at Eyesight either at uh, Cannes or at the Critics Fest, Chicago Critics Film Fest. So that was about three, almost four months ago. Did you did you end up seeing them again for this month? I didn't, no. I mean, because there were so many... Yeah, I mean, you've seen it. You did the review. Yeah, you know yeah. what, how you feel about it. Sure. And I mean, there are, there's one that we'll talk about that I'm definitely going to see again. Um, and there's another one um, that I want to see again, but it's unfortunately getting kind of pushed to streaming. Um, Interesting. Which is kind of sad, but I mean, 
it's august yeah it, it's it's the dog days of summer and um i find it kind of odd how the film release calendar is kind of changing um i think part of it has to do with the advent of streaming as i would say our main form of entertainment in term like we're getting most of most of the shows i watch i do not have cable um don't even bother with it uh most of the entertainment i watch is via streaming and most most of the way i watch a lot of uh you know whether it's television or film is via streaming and i think it's starting to have an effect on the you know where they put movies and stuff i feel like they're just assuming that they jump out of the gate with blockbusters that are actually pretty good like avengers infinity war like no matter how you feel about i i don't don't know how you feel about the avengers franchise but honestly i thought it was like pretty good i'm like this is pretty good sure and then you fall into ant-man and the wasp which is like yeah really you know i could do without it but it's also not terrible and then they're not even releasing um a marvel film right now because it's just like no one wants to go to the movies in deep august and see uh really just the bottom of the barrel like this is is this them scraping the barrel for the summer movie season i mean for the most part it's kind of a dumping ground but it's not as bad of a dumping ground as january is but it's still pretty rough i mean it's more of a wild card month that's just that we didn't have any of those positive wild cards like I mean, some of my favorite movies of recent years happen to come out in August. Mm-hmm. They just sort of were dumped out around that time because it's an open, it's a more open schedule. I mean, right. um, like August is when Scott Pilgrim or The World's End came out. Like those studio films that will not reach a wide audience. So they don't really know how to market it. Or like Wild Card Indies. Um, last August in 2017 was Ingrid Goes West, which I loved. And no film. one, but no one saw that. Yeah, um, that was also August. Um, and there are a couple other ones that are some nice delights, but they're mm. not enough of them. Well, let's start with the delights. We don't want this to seem like a total uh, pan fest, you know? No, it was a there's wash. Some, there's, been, there's been some really good stuff, stuff worth your time, yeah. stuff worth your money. Um, let's let's start out with finally getting the wide release of Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new joint. Um, and it's... You know, I think this is one of the the films of the year, although it is garnering an interesting conversation around itself, and we'll get to that. But uh, Matt, let's talk about Black Klansman. I think you've you've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but now um, that it's in a wide release, people are really getting the chance to see this film. Uh, you know, I feel like this is Spike Lee really saying, "All right, I'm back. I'm making cinema again." Yeah. Like, and and I'm not a person that I did not hate Chirac. Some people really did not vibe with it. Right. I thought it was interesting. I was like, you know what? I'll give it up for Spike Lee trying to adapt uh, an old Greek play, Lysistrata, yeah, into modern day Chicago. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. That's that's interesting. Sure. But um, tell me tell me a little bit about how you feel about uh, Black Klansman and also maybe some, some Spike Lee himself as a person. Um, as a person, I love him just because he's so deadpan and he has the dead eyes of a shark, which I love. <laughs> and and it's especially whenever he has cameos in any of his movies, they're not necessarily the most fitting cameos. Like he no. plays a news reporter in Summer of Sam and there are some scenes that are intercut with him in it. And mm-hmm. he's hilarious because he's just suffocatingly dry yes but i mean like i don't think it necessarily fits into the movie itself but i'm still oh. really happy it's there yeah um i no, i super, i totally appreciate him as an artist even if i don't think he always works really well um but even you what i do like is, is a lot of filmmakers 
if they have a lot of ambition mm-hmm. uh even if that doesn't translate you don't know what they're trying to say um with him his intentions are always very clear mm-hmm. um so there's never anything to get particularly upset about um even if it does not really work like the there is like the one ending she a scene and she's got to have it um he even went back and said yeah i i shouldn't have done that yeah um at least he's willing to say something yeah, about that, it. Like, like, yeah. yeah, and if he's going to actually say something, then that's he must have actually been feeling kind of bad about it. But um, Black Klansman was... Uh, when I saw it at Cannes, it played incredibly well. And it was odd seeing it there because it was, depressingly enough, the movie that felt the most like home as yes. I was <laughs> in France. Um, but it played incredibly well. Um, it's But what struck me was just how... And comparatively to his other films, how refined it felt. It felt a lot tighter, especially for a movie um, written by, with four credited screenwriters, including Spike Lee. Um, usually his, uh, the way he paces films are, can be erratic or some scenes will feel incredibly over-directed. Um, this feels a lot more consistent. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that contributes to why it's been doing as well to ha- as it has been. Like it's doing, it's pushing 35 million domestic right now. And for focus, especially that's a huge hit. That's massive. Um, but the, the main thing that struck with, that stuck with me was how well it balanced its tones, um, which is something he doesn't usually always, you know, succeed in. Namely, I mean, this is a movie that's in turn satirical and disturbing and depressing as hell and very very funny um but all around it is it is genuinely a crab pleaser in a very odd way um the one thing that um stuck with me in a not so positive way was and i'm not gonna spoil anything the way the movie ends itself not the ending of the movie but the way the movie ends the very very ending that was something that in the moment worked really well for me and then as i got farther away from it i just felt kind of crass and exploitative Mm -hmm. and that's also something i've been seeing some other people say um whether or not they like the movie and i really liked it but there's there's one thing that he does at the very very end that felt kind of like a gimme okay and i i can definitely see that i can definitely see that being if if there's going to be one criticism that it really um you know shapes the opinion of a movie that might be one of them but luckily i mean luckily there's so much to enjoy oh yeah um fantastically cast yep. uh john david washington mm-hmm. brings down he just he just he brings down the house he kills every scene he's in yeah he's super fun he's and, super charismatic absolutely and, and and i mean he's really classically trained not in, not just in terms of being you know the son of denzel washington yeah but um he spent a lot of time here at the Shakespeare Theater over at Navy Pier. Yeah. Um, he's very he's got such a uh uh handle on his craft that I can't wait to see what he does next. And I'm glad that his first kind of big debut as a leading man is in a Spike Lee movie. Yeah, also, I really appreciate Topher it. Topher Grace. Oh my god, I'm so glad he's back. <laughs> oh yeah, that was, was the thing. Like, I wasn't expecting this at all. I saw two he had two movies at Cannes and he was he had like two scenes in Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. Um which I wonder if they're going to stay in the movie because that that was supposed to come out in June. It got pushed back six months after yeah, the mixed so reception at Cannes. So I don't know if they're if A twenty four is fiddling with it, yeah, or if they really think it's going to have an awards push. Which that movie is not going to get anything. It's too out there, yeah, um, and too unrefined. Mm-hmm. I like it, but um, he had two scenes in Under the Silver Lake, and then he's in Black Klansman, and I wasn't expecting to be so team Topher Grace, but he is just eating it up here, and he's super. He's having. A lot of fun, but I mean, it's also there's a piece where 
he mentioned he was just so depressed playing because he's playing david duke right um so he was so depressed playing it that he to decompress would re-edit was it the lord of the, 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 hobbit, the hobbit the yeah. hobbit films yeah he re-edited the three hobbit films into one two-hour movie yeah. which honestly in addition to um bringing trying to bring his career back in a sense but I, but the thing is that it's one of those performances it doesn't feel like he's trying to bring his career back no he's he's just totally going for it he's like yeah i'm gonna play fucking david duke like i'm gonna be one of the most hated people in america yeah and it's it, it it's nice that he doesn't go so over the top with it because it allows the performance to work with the filmmaking itself to actually make the satire mm-hmm. gel and come out and even uh like just the way it's cut there's i mean like i feel like the most emblematic part of the movie there's well there's two parts there's one where um one of the main clan members is in bed with his wife and they're cuddling and having it's they're talking about like what horrible things they're gonna do but it's played off like cute pillow talk yeah um like hatred is their pillow talk and that was a really funny moment um but then there's also a part where uh it's uh like this kind of like this french like expressionism intercutting between um clans members speaking on stage and then cutting back to black panthers just reacting dead-faced um and i feel like those that kind of ties in the most self-reflexive aspects of the movie itself um it's it's two hours and 15 minutes i don't think it drags too much uh if at all i felt i felt like it really it kept a really tight pace yeah i didn't feel like because there are some movies it's it's so funny because people say like oh they they talk about like a golden time for any movie they're just like oh yeah like a, a comedy should be a tight 90 sure or like you know dramas oh you could probably get to two hours two hours 15 and like you know you got things like ben hur that are two days long i don't know how long that movie is um but i've i've always been a proponent of like a good movie is exactly as long as it needs to be like and trying to break down like oh no country for old men could have probably shaved 15 minutes off it's like ah well it didn't and that's like the point they made the movie this is it um and I think for me, Black Klansman moved at a really good clip. And yeah. I was just like, this is entertain this is entertaining. It has my attention. It's not like watching um a movie that, a weird transition uh christopher robin which i was just like oh my god this is the longest fucking children's movie i've ever seen it's not and really it's, a children's movie not That's... at all it's so weird but um before we get into that uh i do want to bring up boots riley yeah he clapped and back at it he he did clap back at black Klansman, and the thing with boots riley is he is uh just so intelligent he's very measured i felt like what he was talking you know he, whenever he talks he's he's he can be angry but he doesn't come off as angry he's like listen i'm gonna talk i'm gonna talk at like this volume and i'm gonna give you the these are just the straight feelings i have yeah and, and it's like for a bit of context what happened was he uh tweeted a like he screen capped a four-page word document and mm-hmm. tweeted it out and it was essentially his issues with black Klansmen and its revisionist history mm-hmm. um namely how it it's it's muddied politics that are somewhat hypocritical in terms of how it um glorifies police officers mm-hmm. in this climate and especially with all the racial politics that play into the film as a whole um when you sort of mix up what actually happened 
based on the memoir that's based off of, it doesn't necessarily have the impact, and some people could take it the wrong way. Yeah, I can see that. Because didn't um, the officer that uh, John David Washington plays, while he did infiltrate the the KKK, didn't he also, wasn't it also his job to infiltrate, um, like, the Black Panthers or other pro-black yeah. organizations yeah, in, and this took, in the same way? Yeah, and this took a, a long while. In the movie, it's it happens very quickly. They glaze over it a bit. Yeah. But the, in in real life, it took it was it was a it was a slow burn of an operation. Yeah, it was like a concerted effort and all this kind of stuff. And um, and 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 that's the thing is, um, I'm I'm glad that we live in a world where we can talk about like. I, and I don't think uh, Boots Riley is even saying that he didn't like the movie. No, I, that's def- and that's the best part about. It. He's like, listen, I like this movie. This is a great movie. He he, I think he really respects Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. And I think if you watch Sorry to Bother You, there is a lot of that spikely kind of early punk mentality yep. to it. Like there, there's shades of do the right thing in mm-hmm. Sorry to Bother You in terms of its like sense of humor and things like that, the way it approaches these subjects. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really glad that Boots took, I'm, like I thank him for taking the time to be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you not just a few tweets as a clapback. He's like, I'm going to write this out. Like, I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel about it. And there's no hate or anything like that. But this is just how I feel. And um, how do you think it should people take that? If you haven't seen Black Klansman and you're already reading this, how do you think it's going to affect people going to see it? Or do you think it's going to affect like its legacy or, you know, say come awards time, which is a load of bullshit anyway. But like when it comes to those prestige moments for Black Klansman, uh, is this going to be in people's heads? Um, I, unfortunately, I don't think so, just because I don't think Boots Riley has enough clout at the moment. He should, mm-hmm. and I, I think he will with He'll time. He'll get there, He yeah. will with time, but right now, I mean, he just made his first feature. Um, but the, the, I, I mean, I feel like most people who bothered to read his statement were, are already open-minded enough to not immediately push away his grievances with the film. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I think an important distinction to make is... There's such a people hold true stories on such a pedestal, even though it's you're essentially co-opting actual events in order to tell a fictional narrative. Mm -hmm. It's not that you are claiming everything to be completely accurate. Let's get into uh, one of the more confusing movies of this month: Christopher Robin, uh, starring Ewan McGregor um not a prequel to not not this obi-wan standalone movie we were hoping for also completely unrelated to last year's goodbye christopher robin yes with that, donald gleason yeah i would have i would have liked to see uh you know donald gleason just show up in this movie in like the background he as, might as well as a milne sure um i watched this movie like in the middle of the night um it was like i went to a i, I went to an employee screening at the theater i work at um and we watched it and I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is cool. Until we get to uh, straight up the the war. Like, I was, I mean, I was really thrown off by that. I was just like, okay, so Christopher Robin goes to war. And it was a shockingly intense sequence. It's very short. <laughs> but I, fe- it was, I was like, wow, this is this is intense for what i thought was going to be a children's movie. And then the rest of it, it's, it's very sweet, but almost... Um, 
depressing through a lot of it and i think a part of that has to do with the fact that i watched winnie the pooh as a child and yeah. like i think that's what this is about it's about like regaining your innocence in a sense and all this kind of stuff uh but uh it's directed by mark forrester if, yeah, I, if i'm not correct did everyone's favorite quantum of solace oh, christ alive and yeah some other stuff but yeah it's the thing about it is it was originally well first off i want to say if no one saw the 2011 animated winnie the pooh movie because it opened opposite the last harry potter movie yeah that animated winnie the pooh movie is great and it's like 78 minutes or something yeah it's, it's worth your time it's delightful and no one remembers that that exists but um this christopher robin movie is bizarre because it was originally written by alex ross perry who wrote things like Queen of Earth and Listen Up, Philip? He's this really sarcastic, yeah. sardonic indie voice. So he wrote it, and then they got Alison Schroeder to rewrite it, and she wrote Hidden Figures. And then they got, um, oh God, oh God, what's his name? Writer director of Spotlight to rewrite that right. script. So there's just a bunch of coffee marks all over the entire script. <laughs> and you can see tinges of what, what there was before. There's this odd joke that made me laugh a kind of in disbelief there's like a joke where eeyore pretends to commit suicide yeah to get uh christopher robin's attention i'm like what's happening yeah um Pooh, but, i think Pooh is like really he's really sarcastic he's kind of a dick like he's like that was the funny thing is was funny Pooh was like the mostly because they had jim cummings doing the voice again yes so that was just warm in and of itself but that's a movie that seems entirely too pleased with its own tropes and it doesn't yes. do a much with them namely the workaholic dad trope mm-hmm. um the idea of not being able to balance your childhood with your adulthood um but it's there's so many different voices going on that it doesn't really work and it doesn't mm-hmm. even really work from a visual perspective either because i it's sh- it was shot on 35 and it looks bad yeah well it's like it's weird and and correct you know I don't know how how because uh, I only watched it the one time, but yep. I'd be curious to watch it again because when I was watching it, I'm just like, this looks like someone trying to do Winnie the Pooh directed by Terrence Malick. Like there was a <laughs> lot of really like w- shots of wheat. I was like, yeah. what what is this? I was like, Pooh looks like I don't like that it that he looks. It's so real. It's like a, it's an odd. It's kind of creepy. It's a very strange visual style it's um, especially super realistic rabbit oh yeah rabbit so and owl they both look they're actual woodland creatures yes. the rest of everyone else they it's look a toy. like stuffed animals yeah yeah so i'm um, like where where is the logic here uh, and i mean granted we're talking about uh a movie about a talking bear but you know yeah but on top of that also they establish early on that this in this universe christopher robin left his friends and his toy friends are sentient creatures that everyone else is aware of yes so he basically abandoned his living friends it wasn't like (laughs) they came alive in his imagination he essentially just abandoned a group of people oh my god and left them in a tree and then came back years later just waiting for decades with ptsd yeah i was like god this is just so weird i mean i i do have to say it is admirable to try and do because i think i think if you're gonna do a movie about leaving your childhood behind yeah and like having to rediscover it and that kind of stuff i think winnie the pooh is a great property to do that with because so many people grew up with winnie the pooh and it is such a wholesome sort of uh uh property 
but this was just so odd it was odd but it and it's also like it's a fitting property to explore that but it's also like ewan mcgregor is a fitting actor to do it because this is this clearly these are themes that resonate with him because yeah it's oddly enough they're thematically it's very similar to t2 train spotting from a year and a half ago (laughs) it's pretty much the same movie but with less heroin and so this is clearly something that resonates with him and he's putting his all into it and he's typically charismatic um the rest of it is just a drag yeah crazy rich asians um huge hit huge box office hit um and really changing uh, well i mean everybody's writing a think piece on it now yeah and i mean as you as you heard in the earlier interview it is a very positive thing to have this i'm very excited that uh crazy rich asians is is here and it's staking its claim but of course everybody has to throw their two cents in it's like how good this is for representation and we don't need to beleaguer that point because it seems kind of patently obvious right but um just from a critical standpoint this is getting really extremely positive reviews and i think deservedly so i think this is a really like solid super solid rom-com yeah it is it's just impeccably well done it's well written it's snappy it's got um the right balance of humor and heart and all this kind of stuff and plus visually fantastic oh it has some great production design unbelievable and this is coming from the guy who directed the ill-fated gem and the holograms adaptation and so i'm i'm happy he did the both of the justin bieber documentary films i believe so he yeah does, yeah he has so a he knows background how- in like he did one of the step-up movies like he has background yes. in 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 theatricality like, exactly so i mean realistically he's the perfect director for this he, yeah i mean he you know captures the opulence really well i kind of wish they got like someone else to direct it alongside with him because i feel like he did a decent job with the you know the 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 fluff of it mm-hmm. but i did have issues with some of the pacing and then also he there are a lot of montages there are a lot of montages and i'm like oof i get it yeah i mean it's it's a movie that's just out over two hours mm-hmm. um i don't think it needs to be like that uh, the beginning of act two i thought dragged a lot because there was a lot of expositional setup that never mm-hmm. really paid off and that book that book is pretty short like crazy rich asians the book that it's based on is like not particularly long um so they probably could have done a, they could have done a little bit more trimming even to like just streamline it yeah and it's there was one thing i because i have not read the book so there was one point where i thought they were going to do something incredibly subversive um and then they completely back end that and say never mind and it felt like a really obligatory attempt at fulfilling audience expectations which maybe it's just because i'm jaded yeah but that really peeved me all right um, and and not to you know i'll th- i'll say it here a little bit of a spoiler alert i mean we'll try to keep it as general as possible but if you haven't seen it you might want to skip ahead a little bit um is, are we talking about the mahjong scene yeah i love that and then they undo it yeah that's that that did stick in my craw a little bit and i was just like oh okay yeah like, um but it was it was cool that they that they flirted with it because i i you know i do understand that they wanted to keep with genre conventions yeah and i enjoyed it because it's when it does embrace its genre conventions it does so endearingly and it there's a there's a great knowingness to it that's mm-hmm. unspoken, which is appreciated, especially nowadays where everything has to be commented on. That is um, true. But it 
there's an unspokenness to how it operates within the genre conventions, especially when you're taking something that's so Western mm-hmm. in its elements and in its storytelling, and you're putting it into an Eastern context, and it works with the internal and the external really well. Because, mm-hmm. like, namely, the central conflict is mostly internal in the film, and yeah. it's racial identity in terms of being American, raised American, born in New York, etc., yeah. but being like being asian yeah um and then people from you know a chinese family living in singapore resenting that Mm -hmm. so i mean and at at the very least you can i I mean and i'm someone that i really enjoyed this movie i have not seen i was going into it i was like oh uh, you know i'm gonna support this because i would like to see if 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 this will push more representation and we can go into some other deeper narratives you know not not to call it so surface level but i mean no it's it's, not and it's i mean it's definitely a good step forward and but it's a it's a known quantity i was like i have a feeling about where this is going yeah uh the happy time murders Mm. okay did you see this one? I did. Okay. Yeah, this... You know, it's, it's only like 78 minutes or Yeah, if you take like out that. credits, it's 79 minutes, and yeah. I was... It feels like the Decalogue, and <laughs> it's... For all you film nerds out there. It's so long. It's, it's draining, just mostly because it's boring, but I mean, this is about what you'd expect from... Because I was curious. I mean, this is directed by Brian Henson, who's son of Jim Henson. Yep. Who also did Muppets Treasure Island. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, and he did one other, which I'm blanking on right now. Because did f- take Man- did he do Take Manhattan or Great Muppet Caper? He didn't want. He did something he did one else, of those. but I don't remember because I'm a fake fan. But he <laughs> he's directing this one, and this has been in development for a decade. It was announced in 2008, and they cycled through a bunch of stars. Originally, they got Cameron Diaz, and then the, she dropped, and they got Catherine Heigl, and then she dropped, and then they announced that they're actually going to pursue it more and now it's out and it has Melissa McCarthy and it's just stultifyingly lazy yeah and it's, it's dull it, it proves that dirty jokes does not a good movie make that's the thing it's but it's so it's not even like if you take it on surface level it's so inoffensive but if you actually look at it, it I'm kind of worried about what it represents because it's so emblematic of not even just post ironic humor but like post post ironic humor where everything it's where we've come to a conclusion where irony is so ubiquitous that we might as well not even try and it's seen as cooler to be entirely apathetic and banal than to actually put an effort and there's so little depth or consistency to the script i know that sounds surprising to complain about in this type of movie but there are there are aspects where it's trying to be satirical, or at least it appears to be trying to be satirical. Like, these puppets are stand-ins for minorities, and mm-hmm. they make one joke about fur bleaching, which is a, basically like a puppet parallel to skin bleaching and self-hatred in minorities. And it's like a throwaway gag, and there are things like that that are littered in, but they don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And there's not much of a background to it. Um, there's the entire movie is essentially a really vague riff on film noir. So there's a bunch of film noir-esque voiceover. Um, and the, but all the references are as broad as can be. And so it's, I don't know if it's because they didn't know what they were referencing or because they didn't try or because they just wanted to make it as cast as wide a net for audiences. Yeah. But there's, there's no real sense of understanding of what it's supposed to be parodying. Yeah. 
and on top of that it's just boring it's it's literally zero substance and um i have uh, you know i really don't want to criticize melissa mccarthy too much because i think that she's been uh, a relatively positive force in, in comedy um i haven't loved everything that she's done i feel like she gets typecast a lot yeah and it's unfortunate it really sucks because i think she's definitely capable of a lot better so like i i I liked her in saint vincent quite a bit yeah i liked her in that i I didn't like the movie but i liked her yeah she she did a good job it showed it showed at least like okay we can cast her in something that's not just like oh look she's a big woman yeah like which i think or not she's either like oh look she's so woefully physically unfit for or what's just like happening white trash yeah white trash or just like oh she says she says tits like that's yeah like she says dirty things and she you know and which is sad because that performance in bridesmaids yeah made her oh yeah and was so funny like i i loved it i was like okay so she's gonna be like a star now and um it really has been hit or miss and i feel like this was just a paycheck for her i'm scared for her i'm very scared i'm scared for her because she is following the the same career trajectory of adam sandler in that he had a few genuine hits that really struck a chord with people and then he just had so many flops um i mean earlier this year she also had life of the party which was pretty awful yeah i don't think anybody really saw it no um and then i remember like five and a half years ago it was closer to bridesmaid she had identity thief which was also awful tammy oh yeah that was that sucked um i didn't like the heat that much either i liked the heat i didn't love it but it's but it's it, even then like at that point it's like mediocrity mediocrity is almost is like just as bad as yeah failure like i'm sure it was a decent box office hit the heat but it's like critically mediocre and i'm just like yeah i mean i'm sure it's it's fine it's inoffensive it's funny like but not any it, like it didn't get near the heights that she could reach yeah um and i think part of it i don't think it's her fault necessarily like she's got to take roles you know she's a working actor you yeah know, she's got to do what she's got to do but maybe she could be a little bit more discerning i think she kind of hoped that saint vincent would have been like her punch drunk love in a sense where yeah. it's just like hey you know oh i'm a serious actor too so paul thomas anderson maybe give her a call yeah that's my the thing that also is odd is the you like you can say a lot of stuff about Melissa mccarthy but you can never say that she doesn't try uh she's 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 not lazy she's always putting everything out there but in happy time murder she doesn't seem like she's trying at all she just she she turns she lay you know rests on her laurels in a sense she's just like yeah i can be raunchy i can be yeah i can say well, words like more, hymen she's closer to a, the straight character in, in this a movie sense. as well but also on top of that she just doesn't seem no one in the movie really seems like they want to be there but no. she especially because she's usually so like she can be high like, energy she can be yeah really high energy and then even if that's taken the wrong way she can just be belligerent and she's neither here yeah i mean it, i guess it would be like oh yeah she's gonna be the the straight man but even then she's given like you know she's being in like the dirty movie and i mean either way i think we both agree that this is hardly her finest hour no um i hope this movie goes away so fast and um you know i think with happy time or like the minute i found out you know that was finally coming to fruition yeah i was like okay so i'm gonna compare this to um the piece of media that i always associated with being the subversive take on sesame street avenue q Mm -hmm. and it was hard not to because i'm just like it's the same idea in a sense it's just like what if big bird said fuck um and like i think it's exactly what you said like just the laziness of it 
and the post post irony like <laughs> it's it's totally there like avenue q is a movie that is naughty and all that kind of stuff but it has like some real heart and sincerity to what it's saying right like that's when that's when these sorts of movies are fun is and good is like it's like yeah it's you know it does all this other stuff but it has a heart it has sincerity behind it not just empty postmodernism. yeah and it's it's just i hope this run really goes away as quickly as possible <laughs> yeah um we'll get let's just do a little bit of a lightning round with some other ones that uh <laughs> three of them that i i think I, I only saw two of these movies that will bring up uh the meg i wanted to like this i wanted it to be dumber yeah and it's not dumb enough not, not dumb enough and it's also weird because it's um like jason statham said he he said something like this is not what the script i signed on to this make. is not the version that we want to tell but the thing that was so odd is that it feels like everyone's efforts are it feels like everyone was making a different movie <laughs> mostly in terms of even in terms of behind the camera but also the performances um but the thing about behind the camera is the script is not written to be as ridiculous as it could have been and it feels like they thought it was inherently ridiculous on the page so it would have been insane on the screen to make it more ridiculous. and then john turnaltob's direction doesn't go over the top enough with it um and everything is almost at like a five the entire time instead of like an 11d stupid yeah and M- missing that that potential intensity yeah like and it's fun yeah and it's there are points where it's also just kind of shoddy i feel like the shark changed size a couple times um and this is also this might sound picky but also it's the production designs from the person who did the production design for the lord of the rings trilogy and it looks really flat and lacks texture so it looks very cheap i might cry that really upsets me yeah the production design was from the person who did the lord of the rings trilogy and oh but the thing God. is the meg all of the surfaces and places really lack texture and you put that in line with the cinematography and it just looks very flat and dull and it could be poppy in a trashy sort of way, and it's mm-hmm. just sort of there. Maybe they could have taken a few more pages out of Roger Corman's book. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't nearly self aware enough. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think the main sentiment with that one was I wanted to like this. I, I think, really wanted. I think to. audiences were ready for it. They were just like, oh fuck, I want another shark movie. I want a I want a big dumb monster movie. Yeah. Godzilla's gone pretentious now. It's like yeah, all Gareth Edwards and shit. So like, we need something dumber. I need to, where's where's where is this summer's Armageddon? <laughs> where is this summer's armageddon where's con air i mean i'm not trying to be you know oh man things were so good back in the late 90s those movies suck like well maybe not armageddon i think armageddon has like some legitimate shit going on but like um aren't like you go back and you watch con air so you see john cusack running around in like socks and sandals as an f as like a marshal a u.s marshal chasing down this plane that's been stolen by uh cyrus the virus and it's just it's just the craziest movie i've ever seen and it was perfect (laughs) there's nothing there's nothing like that this summer everything has to be you know even the marvel movies aren't like fun anymore it's almost like homework yeah you know there's nothing uh i was really hoping the meg would be that one big dumb standout and it really wasn't no um mile 22 what a disaster okay alive oh you saw this too yeah yeah what a train wreck okay this is incomprehensible and i was not prepared for what a trash fire this is going to be mm-hmm. um, i thought it was going to be standard i was like okay yes this could be 
decent there could be some cool sequences that's the thing it's i mean this is the fourth collaboration with mark Wahlberg and peter berg and those past three movies i also i didn't despise any of them i mean i thought lone survivor was incredibly average i thought Deepwater horizon was decent i thought patriot's day well i don't remember anything about patriot's day but i know i saw it so i didn't hate it a lot of stuff blew up yeah and alex wolf played one of the terrorists yeah, which is he was weird he was alex Sar- he was alex sarnev or yeah. yeah it was bizarre um and but mile 22 is a disaster and it is it like it's in line with gaudy and slender man for this year but it's a train wreck and it's so i left that theater with a migraine and it's short it's <laughs> it's like an hour and 34 minutes but it's so it it felt like it was written by Cleverbot, where every single character speaks with the exact same voice, so there's no distinction, and it feels like it was edited with a chainsaw. So I felt like there was someone standing behind me tugging my hair left and right as I was sitting in the theater just telling me where to look. And there, there's no real sense of spatial continuity, even in scenes of dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's They break the 180-degree rule a lot, but there's no purpose behind it. Um, yeah. So it's incredibly confusing. And it's so nonstop in one note that by the end of it, I mean, I think because nothing really happens until no. mid, the midway point. Yeah. And by that point, I just didn't care at all. Um, but it's also just incredibly annoying. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg is just insufferable in this movie. He's really awful. He's trying to do this really quick, witty, like rattling off everything off his mind really yeah. fast. But hey, it's, man, it's I'm in charge. It, but it's incredibly obnoxious. Super obnoxious. And he's meant to be enjoyable like they paint him as a fun they paint him as a guy that you're supposed to like i was like who the fuck would actually like this guy no one likes this no it's obnoxious as hell and the entire movie feels it's odd because there's there's one line that struck me because it was sort of emblematic of the movie as a whole where they're getting their assignment and there's a higher up who says something like your job isn't to predict what happens um that's what academics do. Your job is to guess what happens using your imagination and your brawn or something along those lines. I'm like, okay, so they're just making it up as they go along. Yeah. And then there's not even an ending because no. this movie was conceived as the start of a franchise and it came out two weeks ago, I believe. And it's so far, it's not even made 30 million domestic. Mm-hmm. Thank God. But it is awful. And I was very grateful to be out of that theater. Um, it's very. I, I'm not really a fan of sunny weather because I think it's very overstimulating, but yeah. I was just happy to not be in that theater. Um, <laughs> and it's it's like, but yeah, I was having war flashbacks to Suicide Squad <laughs> with that editing. I mean, it's you're not you're definitely not wrong there. Um, yeah, I would if really a franchise. Yeah, I would have so, I would have sooner rather seen the return of uh, the Dark Universe cinematic <laughs> universe than than see this get a sequel. Um, it's too bad because the the cast is decent. Like, the, I mean, the idea of the cast is decent. Ronda Rousey. Oh yeah, she's in it. She's in it. Lauren Cohen from The Walking Dead, and really the biggest disappointment, uh, Eco Oasis from is, The Raid and The Raid Two. Yeah, um, he's the guy. He's the MacGuffin that they basically have to transport from A to B. Yeah, because he's a, a foreign police officer who Something. might have. Who intel knows? on a possible terrorist attack so they have to transport him he gets a few good sequences but they're directed does so he poor- mm. 
The, he, yeah, that's what I thought. He gets yeah. Well, what's the? I, I feel so as as you were saying, like it's un like I don't even remember what happened. Oh, like, I don't at all. I was there's I, like some scene where he he gets he gets like one decent action sequence, but it's directed so, like it's shot and edited so poorly. Yeah, and it's just weird to think that this is the guy from the raid, which is like basically was a uh, martial arts showcase unlike any other. Like. Eco Aways is amazing. Right. What he does in those movies. And it's shot, you know, those are shot so perfect to highlight it. Mm-hmm. And they just waste his talent. This guy's like a A class martial arts um, you know, actor. Right. And and stunt performer. And they just completely waste him here. There's like no reason for him to be in this movie at all. Yeah, I think this movie made my brain hemorrhage. So at the end of the day, do see Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. Do see Black Klansmen. Yes. Um, you know, but definitely skip Happy Time Murders, Christopher. Well, you know what? Go see Christopher Robin. So, some people really did like it. That's, if nothing else, just for the curiosity. If nothing, if nothing else, see it to see like what that could look like. Find out what happened to Christopher Robin in like World War One, yeah, or whenever it was nondescript. Uh, skip the Meg because it's just wasted potential. And absolutely, just just go to your local theater, find the. Um, Find the thumbstick that's got mile 22 and on it and just throw it into the river. <laughs> throw it away. Matt Cipolla, uh, critic over at Film Monthly, one of our favorite critics. Always a pleasure talking to you, man. Thank it's you. It's always so good. Um, and you'll be here, of course, next month as one of our board members mm-hmm. uh, talking about this again. Where can we follow you on social media? Uh, on Twitter, you can just find me at Cipolla Matt, C I P O L L A Matt. And then. Um, also, that's my name on Instagram, but there's a period between Cipolla and Matt. Um, letterboxed, Matt Cipolla, Facebook if you want. Uh, that's about it. But yeah. mostly on Twitter. Just, yep. For sure, Twitter and for sure, uh, letterboxed. Follow this guy on Letterboxd because it's a great way to get recommendations. Yeah, honestly. that's where I plug all my reviews. You yeah. can see that. And I also see all the curate reviews. it very, yeah. very tenderly. Yeah. As I, I, I can't show people my letterboxed because they'll know how many times I've watched Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week for another fantastic episode of NoCo Cinema. We'll be back next week with plenty more cinema talk. I am Tom Hush, and you guys have a great Labor Day. Well, actually, we're recording this over Labor Day weekend, so I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>